Hi everyone, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. This is Ash Milton, Managing Editor at Palladium Magazine. Uh, today we're going to talk about green futures, and uh, I'm happy to be joined by Tia Tormenen and Marco Fisher. Uh, so Tia and Marco co-authored our recent article, How Finland's Green Party Chose Nuclear Power. Um, a really fascinating piece looking at how, you know, one of the uh, parties in Europe's sort of network of green parties, which has traditionally been fairly anti-nuclear, pivoted on this issue over a number of years and has now become an advocate of nuclear power. And we're going to talk about uh, that issue somewhat, but also more broadly, um, what the visions of the future that inform that view are. Readers will know that we published uh, a few months ago our seventh print edition, Palladium 7, uh, and that issue was themed Garden Planet. So a lot of our ecological discussion at the moment has been informed by this issue. Uh, it is available for subscribers. Uh, so if you come to palladiummag.com slash 07, again, that's palladiummag.com slash 07, you can see more info there about the prints and how to become a Palladium member and receive those four times a year on different issues. Tia and Marco, thanks for joining. So we, Tia, I guess we got a bit of your background in the article itself. So you, you have a bit of an athletic background, but in politics, uh, you you were involved in Finnish politics for quite some time. Your family was involved in, in politics there. You were leader of, I, I think, the Finnish Liberal Party for a while, but then you later on joined the Greens and and you were a member of this kind of broadly eco-modernist uh, network in Finland. Um, can you just talk a little bit about uh, maybe some of the background that we didn't cover in the piece and what what got you onto this uh, eco-modernist concept to begin with? Uh, well, yeah, like I said in the article, I've been an environmentalist basically all my life. So I, I always enjoyed watching nature, uh, programs about, about nature and uh, animals and the environment uh, was a big concern of mine even before starting school um um uh, but i i always thought that uh for example nuclear power and uh, and uh, and gmos are okay and i couldn't really understand the, the traditional environmental movements although before i had an option i i uh, donated money to them i was i was a member because there were no other alternatives um to those movements and then um in 2015, um, my friend uh, tipped me off about the, the Finnish eco-modernist that, you know, there's a new environmental organization and we really need some biologists uh, in there as well, because previously they, they'd had uh, just more like engineers and, and people from that background and that they, they really wanted to acquire some biologists. And I went to a meeting and I immediately thought that, you know, this is uh, my kind of crowd. So they were people were uh, climate activists, but they were pro-nuclear, pro-technology, pro pro-science. And just uh, less than a year um, being involved in the eco-modernist, I was chosen to be the chair. And I was the chair in Finland for four years. And then I, I realized that in Finland, we have a very good situation and this type of thinking is needed elsewhere. And so I started to uh, form this European, well, now it's already global, uh, network of like-minded uh, minded environmentalists. Mm -hmm. And your current project, uh, which I think you mentioned, is Replanet. So for people who want to check that out, that's replanet.ngo. Um, could you just mention what that project is and what you guys are working on? Um, 
yeah, um, it's a new kind of uh, environmental uh, network. It's a, it's a network, an alliance of, of environmental organizations, and it's not just eco-modernist organizations, it's different organizations across Europe with different backgrounds. But we all, all share the idea that we need uh, to take care of humans as well as nature, and that we are able to raise the level of uh, well-being uh, across the globe without destroying our environment if we just use the best means provided to us by science. And uh, we're working on both energy and agriculture issues right now. We just launched our new campaign called Reboot Food, which is about uh, the new food system that we need to build because agriculture is one of the, the, the biggest threat um, to biodiversity, for example, and our land use and land footprint is way too big the way we're doing it now. So we're suggesting new technologies to be used, such as precision fermentation. Um, and so that's that's our um, most recent campaign going on right now. Yeah, and we'll talk about um, a few of those issues uh, sort of through the course of the podcast. Marco, I want to give you a chance to talk a bit about your own work as well. So you're based in the Netherlands. Uh, you've written a book about the nuclear energy issue. Um, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and, and what you've worked on recently? Sure, yeah. So um, I'm a journalist and... Um, I, I used to work for like an alternative magazine in the Netherlands. Uh, actually, it was in English as well at one point, one point uh, because we wanted to change the world. And in the Dutch language, we don't get very far. Hmm. Uh, so we opened an office in the San Francisco, uh, in the Bay Area. Um, this was I, I was following mainly globalization, sustainability, um, and I was I, I was never very keen on nuclear. In fact. <laughs> As I was working on my book on nuclear, which is just out in Dutch, um, I dug up an article I wrote in the year 2000. Um, there had been a climate change conference from the UN. And over there, the nuclear industry was present and promoted nuclear energy as a means to you know, tackle climate change. And I didn't like that idea at all. And I wrote a piece uh, full of, yeah, what is it, anger or so at the industry for telling lies and for presenting nuclear energy as, as clean and a solution. Um, that just didn't fit my worldview at that time. Um, I think over the years, I, I changed my mind uh, about many things, I guess, when it comes to the environment and how to save our planet. I, when it comes to nuclear, for instance, I guess it was around 2010 that I learned about um, this book that Stuart Brandt wrote, uh, Whole Earth Manifesto is the name, I think, um, um, making a case. Stuart Brandt, by the way, um, for listeners, Stuart Brandt interviewed in Palladium 7. I'll just give the, the plug there. Excellent. Uh, yep. Sorry, go ahead, Marco. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and there were more like him coming from the environmental movement, uh, people such as George Monbiot from the UK, Mark Linus, um, saying um, that nuclear has a great potential in, in our fight against global warming and that many other things about nuclear when it comes to waste or safety are actually very different. So then I sort of opened, I was more open to nuclear, but never fully convinced. And I guess I only got more convinced uh, since writing the book, uh, which is a process over the last three years or so. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's always interesting when people who have background in the environmental movement do 
end up um, coming to this issue. And, uh, you know, if memory serves me correctly, I think this is, um, speaking of Stuart Brand, I think this is an issue that even people like him have updated on over time. Um, you know, this and other issues uh, like like population um, is something I've seen a similar pattern with where, you know, the population bomb was this thing everyone was uh, really taken up by in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, you know, we recently did work at Palladium on China's one-child policy, and they were influenced by this as well. An entire generation was impacted by this. And yet today, um, I think this is not really a paradigm that people work in anymore. And so, you know, it, I think it goes to show, like, the how consequential um, this stuff is. I, th I think that people, you know, with, with environmental topics or ecology, I think that people kind of think of it as theoretical and maybe, you know, maybe a carbon tax or something. That That's where it will start to sort of touch day-to-day -to -day life. But in fact, I think that part of the reason that ecology is interesting is that it's always very upstream for a lot of other things that are happening politically in the world now. And there are a lot of these sort of implicit ideologies that get derived from assumptions about the direction, you know, of the globe regarding population and resources and energy and, you know, climate change and this kind of thing. And, you know, I, I think that's only going to intensify. I mean, we're already seeing that intensify with, um, you know, the, the, the road that, say, climate activism has taken with, uh, you know, people under 25. Uh, and so th this is part of why your, uh, you know, your guys' piece was interesting, because I think it's an example where um, you guys, you know, the, the, the pro-nuclear position, I think, represented something like an, uh, an institutional paradigm change, maybe not one that's totally fleshed out, you know, yet, but a move from a policy that assumes you know that the kind of the industrial uh the industrial logic industrial society um you know technology these things are mainly adversarial and in opposition to humans figuring out how to stabilize our existence on the planet and moving from that to a paradigm where actually these things that we've developed are in conflict right now but that's a contradiction that can, if we make the right decisions, be uh, resolved. So um, I, I'd be interested just to hear how you guys, um, maybe Teal will start with you and then then go to Marco, how, how you're thinking about this. Like how consequential was this change on nuclear power for these kind of broader assumptions, you know, about you know how apocalyptic is our situation, how hopeful should we be and this this kind of thing? Yeah, I think uh, Finland is a really interesting case because this change didn't happen only in the Green Party. It happened across the environmental movement. So there was a change in Greenpeace. There was a change um, in, in young climate act activists and the green youth. And, and so so it happened across and all the, 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 the parties in the parliament as well. So it happened throughout the whole um, kind of group of people that were worried about the environment. And I, I do think it means that people are looking for other solutions right now than going back in time, uh, because this was like the mentality earlier. And there are still stories in the media that celebrate people who are, you know, they're going back to their roots and living, uh, you know, on their own, in, you know, in a countryside and trying to be self-sustained. And, and this is 
there are like stories like this that if these people are portrayed as heroes when in reality if we all started doing that like in the capital city area in finland um that would be impossible we would burn all the all the forests and so on because it's not <laughs> it's not a scalable solution and i think people are starting to realize that um and this is where our organization uh, played a big role in the public discussion that we you know we did the maths we we explained that i mean if we cannot scale um, these solutions we cannot scale going back in time with the population levels that we have now so that that's simply not an option and and you have to tell people what they have to give up if they want to go back in time then you have to give up science and modern health care and and things like that and most people are not willing to do that uh, they don't want to do that and um, and so i think there's a there was a big um i mean the time was right for other kind of thinking that we we don't have to go back we can move forward but we can still save the nature as well we can take care of each other and when we can take care of nature as well and i think that is what happened in finland and i'm not surprised it happened in finland first because Finns are very pro-technology uh, in general. Um, they have been throughout history. So it's I think it's very natural that it happened in Finland. You kind of made the statement that Finnish culture is quite pragmatic, um, more so even maybe than other European cultures. Yeah. Um, do you think like do you think that this means that you know, there is less likely to be uh, an ideological influence, say, from Finland, um, as opposed to, say, Britain or Germany? Uh, is it more uh, a country where policy might be innovative as opposed to ideology? Or do you think that Finland can be an ideological force in the green world as well? Um, I think, yes. Uh, I, I do think we have something to offer as well uh, when it comes to ideology. But... Um... I think, yeah, I mean, Finland has some very good policies, very pra pragmatic policies. And I think we can show other countries that, I mean, if we just focus on what makes sense and what needs to be done, then you get decisions uh, quickly. So, so I mean, Finland has proved to make very big decisions in, very, in a very short time, like the, the de decision about joining the NATO happened very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and parties that were... Uh, against NATO or they didn't have a stance there were like there were many people against and for um, for example in the Green Party as well people just switched their stance like changed their mind in a week um, so Finns are very capable of doing that and coming together when there's important decisions to be made mm -hmm. yeah there's a couple things in there I want to come back to but first Marco I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on this issue of um, uh, you know to, to what extent does the the, the nuclear turn represent a, a bigger update in ideology and worldview or in, in visions about the what is a green future. Mm, yeah. Well, it, it, you know, there's such an appeal, I think, to going back to nature, right? And um, I, I experience it myself, right? I mean, I live in a big city, but I sometimes long for a much more quiet place and live where there's much more green surrounding me whereas here it's all you know um there's just so many houses and buildings <laughs> and I, w I would like to see more more trees here um so i i kind of sympathize with that still um but it's but it's like a simplistic solution right um to then say we all need to go 
back to the land. This may work maybe on an individual personal level, but on the in the, in a modern society, this is this is of course very very different. We, we live in a modern society where we have uh, our energy use is is very high, right? And and this is not something we can easily bring down um, by a lot. Uh, we can be more um, efficient, I guess. But the story of energy efficiency is a story where once we get more efficient, we will use more energy. This is like a, the Jevons paradox. It's, right. it's quite a known paradox, actually. And this is happening all the time. And I, I don't use much energy for my personal use. Uh, we have only four solar, solar panels up on our roof and we're getting by pretty well with with just four um and we have a family of you know three kids um uh but and i'm actually here sitting with i don't know how many clothes on and i'm even in a sleeping bag because mm. it, it it's cold and i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to turn on the heat in this energy crisis so um but this is something i do on a personal level but this is what everybody will think right everybody's energy use is fine for them and others are always the ones who use too much energy right and this right, is right and, and i guess i mean if we can produce energy in a clean way that will make such a big difference because when we think of energy we basically think of fossil fuels right that they've been our dominant source of energy like 80 percent over in the world mm -hmm. but but it doesn't have to be fossil fuels of course and i think Nuclear is very clearly a big competitor, especially for natural gas and coal power plants. Um, and this is clean electricity that can be produced in large quantities. And to some, this may not be sort of the, the solution they were longing for, because some people would like everyone to to live more frugally, I guess, and, and, um, and downsize in their energy use and, and consumption. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, you know, the, the reason I'm asking these questions about ideology, I think people sometimes assume, well, that's just this abstract thing. And it's the, it's the policy stuff that really, you know, changes things and, and gets concrete things done. But the ideological narrative, that is the thing that people assume. It's the, it's the water that they're swimming in a lot of the time, right? I think the ideology is often not assumed. And I think you're right. The when when you know we assume what does a downscaling society look like right people will get these images in their head right you know people living in, in eco villages or cabin in the woods or you know the 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 bundled sweater and this kind of higa sort of vibe uh cutting cutting uh wood that you grew yourself and maybe there's some solar panels in the distance somewhere they, I, I think a lot of people do operate on the level of these images and uh, you know i think the ecological the environmentalist movement you know i think it's always been very driven by imagery of this sort right the image of pollution in an ocean the image of uh uh you know a bird choking on plastic or or the the garbage islands um in 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 the ocean right the, these the image the imagery is important it has a symbolic power that motivates people and so i think that the ideology question is actually quite important because i think what's what we're kind of seeing right now is there's this change going on where a lot of these immediate images 
that we had, you know, over the last 40 years, say, are kind of being updated. And my sense, uh, and, you know, I, I, I've, I've worked on and off um, in organizations that had roots in the environmental movement. You know, I, I, I have this memory of, um, of several years ago, I worked in Munich for an organization that was focused, among other things, on the concept of the Anthropocene. And I remember uh, during that time taking a bus through this sort of rural part of Germany and seeing, you know, uh, there, there were forests that had been planted and like picturesque little villages. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, in the Middle Ages, those forests did not exist, right? This is all farmland in the Middle Ages. It was the rise of the cities nearby that had emptied a lot of that region and allowed forest to be regrown. And I think that it's hard for people to think about that system's level stuff unless they have strong clear images to go with it and so I, I i guess that's sort of what we're what i'm kind of interested in here you know the the images of the green future as you tell that story right and as uh sort of the the pro-nuclear the eco-modernist um concept in environmentalism tells that story i i think that uh California, you know, is an interesting case study here because California has had or is undergoing, I should say, a pro-nuclear turn in a lot of ways, or even the governor, um, Gavin Newsom, has been more supportive of it of late. And, you know, when I talk to people in California who are very pro-nuclear uh, as environmentalists, they are often also in favor of, uh, you know, their so-called yimbies, they're in favor of more building in cities, making it easier for people to live in cities. Uh, you know, often they'll be uh, familiar with like Stuart Brand stuff. They'll be into de-extinction and stuff. You know, th there's always a, a, a sort of set of ideas that you often find alongside each other. And I think that's partially because people have these shared images um, in the way that they're thinking about the future. So I, I guess maybe a question for you guys, you know, what would you say uh, are are those images for you? You know, I, I know that rewilding is something that you talk a lot about. Uh, and you mentioned, Tia, the sort of post-agriculture stuff. C can you kind of describe like the broader picture? What has changed when we look at the future 100 years from now from the way we currently live? Um, there, we don't have poverty. We don't have energy poverty. So um, every person in, in the, on the globe has enough energy to live comfortably. Um, you know, have just a clean electricity uh, for the use. We will have uh, food that is, you know, it's nutritious. It's uh, it's not too expensive for any anyone. Uh, nobody has to starve, and we have plenty of room for nature because we are using as little land as possible. So it will look like um, it doesn't have to look a lot different. Uh, when it comes to like how we have like cities and you know we'll have some cars i would like to the amount of cars to be reduced but the ones we have you know we can share rides we will have electric cars and so on so it will not look that different but it will be cleaner and the nature will be restored i mean it, it we will have um more nature in the like the natural state and we will you know have less land that we're using for agriculture so we can um, have more forests and so so there's kind of um it's kind of back to nature in the sense that we will have more nature 
but then in the concentrated places or where people are living it doesn't have to look that different we will just not have pollution and all the things the fossil fuels are are causing causing but for me it's, it's like we will have science we have education we'll have comforts of the modern day life but we will not be destroying the environment um that's what it looks like to me and it's it's funny like in in Joensuu, my hometown where i live we have this very um famous environmental advocate and activist and he would like us to get off the electricity grid and go completely offline and live in yurts and to me this is very funny because if you actually go to a place where a lot of people live in yurts it's horrible it's full of like small particle pollution from the fires people are using to heat heat up their yurts and so it's it's probably the image to him it's is much different than it's to me because he's just thinking of how it looks like to him when he's doing that individually but if the whole city of Joensuu were to do that it would look completely different and that's i think the appeal that people have is that they think what well, well if i'm living this way but like you said they cannot imagine how will it look like when 5 million people are doing it or or a lot more so that's that's a problem yeah i mean people 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 think of it as as low impact but there's a lot of invisible high impact i mean you know to 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 be fair to our yurt dwelling friends i think that there are probably some people who uh it probably is a good use of their time to go live in yurts yeah. you know I, I i you know people if you're the thing is right people who actually do these things tend to be kind of eccentric interesting you know people and we get interesting work out of them when they go and live this radically different lifestyle yeah but th- this is the scale problem right it's like probably there's you know a few thousand people who we want to send to the yurt so they can meditate on higher things or something and come back to us with revelations but but it it's it's not a scalable thing because there is actually you know the the these hermits even in ancient times right i, I think of monasteries for example you know these hermits who would go out into the deserts or something they they would all be supported by this infrastructure of a city of a monastery nearby even though they were living on their own and so these kind of isolated dwellers are still part of this this complicated civilization and in our case that complex system is an industrial system and so uh, you know i i think you're right there it's you if you don't solve the problem of like th- there are these tensions or contradictions in the industrial system with the planet if that doesn't get resolved there is a collapse that will also no longer support the yurt dwellers so that's i think it's a very important point so so if they hit their a- knee with an axe you know they they will need to go to an hospital and if we're all living in yurts we will not have this hospital so right yeah like you said they're being sustained by modern healthcare and so on yeah um, and i mean i think you see i think you see in practice a lot of this radicalism will get a bit toned down in practice i remember seeing um you know uh, th- this interview done a few years ago with this guy uh, you know Penty Lincola who I'm sure you've heard of right this sort of extreme yeah. extreme environmentalist who you know nuke nuke the cities yeah. and this kind of Not thing Not a big fan of No his. no I would imagine <laughs> but but you know I think in the interview um it was mentioned that he was taking um a, a medication for something I don't remember his diabetes or something else but he was on a modern medication and you know the the injury sort of jokingly pressed him on this it's like oh well, why are you taking this you don't believe in medicine and he kind of just has to shrug his shoulders and i think this you know th- this is usually how it plays out but marco i want to turn um 
to you as well sort of the similar question you know this i this, this broader vision of the future um and and i guess you know i i want to draw a, a more distinct contrast to say what we're seeing among the um, stop oil or these movements that have come out of you know extinction rebellion uh, which which i think the the images there tend to be quite apocalyptic and quite short term right we have 12 years left or whatever it is um i how how you guys engage with that and then do you do you have a vision that you feel is actually strong enough more compelling uh, that you know the the wind can fill your sails quicker right that it has more energy behind it as a vision than these these very apocalyptic climate ideas that i think are right now um activating a lot of people yeah yeah so i mean in general if you ask for a vision for the future and 100 years is very far from now of course but um i, I guess i would start with 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 people um with um um for me global development is probably the most important um issue for me to to be involved with replanet uh, in, in the first place um, i would like to see 10 billion people this century living the standard of living that 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 we enjoy right um with you know enough freedom to choose what you'd like to do and um with the level of democracy and um and it, it would just you know free especially women from drudgery right and, and just hard labor on the land or um, fetching water and, and that kind of stuff um but for that development to happen <laughs> We will need a lot of energy. They will need a lot of energy. And I think we should be the ones um, who will make it more easy for them to make the right choices in, um, um, in, in, in getting the energy that they want um, and trying to, uh, to support them there. Whereas now it seems like the West is sort of putting the brakes on this kind of development and saying they cannot use certain uh, energy sources fossil fuels being uh, some of them um, uh, but even for nuclear to develop in poorer countries it's going to be very difficult to get uh, to get the loans that they that these countries will need um, and yeah food production i mean um, our reboot food campaign is very much on precision uh, fermentation so we could brew uh, microorganisms and get you know the the proteins we need um, from microorganisms rather than the macro organisms, if you like, the, the, the cows and, and, and the pigs, um, that will save such an incredible um, amount of land. Um, um, and and it, it will be so much, you know, it, it will save, um, how you say it, 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 it would reduce emissions use because a lot of CO2 emissions come from land use, of course. Um, it would increase biodiversity because we can rewild uh, the, the land and it would avoid so much um, suffering amongst animals we kill about what is it 75 billion animals a year so um, that's part of my vision um, and I don't think it would need 100 years uh, getting there in fact it's sort of a continuation in certain ways of trends already happening right um, so and I think that vision is much more positive than a vision that that people have who are uh, you, you said the just stop oil uh, campaigns I mean in a way I can understand the impulse to respond to a climate crisis right and I 
I guess I even admire uh, the guts it takes to do something controversial like that. Um, I don't think it's the kind of action that we with Replanet would consider. Um, and in general, I think it makes more sense to focus on real solutions and we want to expand you know, clean energy and make it cheap. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, to so many people, the future seems seems bleak, right? And this is what we hear in a lot of news that we're getting. I think it's time for many journalists as well, and I'm one of them, of course, um, to paint a different picture as well. Yeah. So I want to engage with that idea a bit more that you know the 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 picture that is being drawn right now and marco i think we'll start with you for this one the con the degrowth concept in that that word degrowth is usually how i hear these days that this kind of overall view summed up you know the, the main job we have is not building new systems it's deconstructing existing ones it's returning to a you know a smaller scale of life uh, and, you know, sometimes you'll see it sort of grouped together with these somewhat, you know, third worldist or socialist ideas that, you know, the thing that's going to come afterward will be this more harmonious uh, sort of economy or society or something like that. Um, sometimes you see it in a more ap- apocalyptic form, like the stuff we've been talking about. Uh, I guess, Marco, I'd like to hear whether you think that degrowth is a good way to sum up like this 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 overall view and and how you yourself you know and engage with that concept i mean for for you is this something that we should be sort of fully critical of and opposed to like is this the main thing that should be cast out as much as possible or or does hmm. the degrowth thing have anything in it that you think is actually valuable and take from i'm i'm not a fan of degrowth um i yeah again here i i can understand the impulse I could even see it, it it can certainly serve a purpose when you're living in a wealthy nation and you can, you know, downsize. If that's your choice, totally fine. But I don't think it it's a recipe that will be very appealing uh, to many people, N- not once living in uh, wealthy nations, but certainly not the pe- to the people uh, living in poorer and upcoming countries, right? And it sounds like if you're promoting degrowth, it sounds like a universal thing. It's it's hard for me to untangle that because it sounds like we need to stop growing. And in a way, growth is a is a difficult concept, right? Not we don't want anything. Um, I mean, not everything to grow. GDP is a quite a poor metric, I would say. There, right. you know, there's human well-being. Um, that we would like to grow instead. You don't want tumors Sorry? growing. So to, you don't want exactly, tumors exactly. growing, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but still, yeah, it's, it, I don't think it's a very appealing vision for the future, this degrowth uh, thing. No. no. So why, why then do you think that it has the power currently that it does? I mean, I, I would say that most um, people I knew, my peers who went into things like environmental activism, I would say to greater or lesser degrees, assumed the the kind of general worldview of degrowth advocates. Um, I, I think that what we're seeing, you know, the the, entre- the more entrenched policies on things like uh, city development or nuclear power, for that matter, seem to assume something like a a degrowth mm-hmm. yeah. future. 
So it clearly has this this heavy ideological and now even institutional power. How, why, what is the power of this thing that it has attained yeah. this position? How did this happen? I think there may be several things here at play. Um, one of the, I, I regard the degrowth movement as an elitist uh, movement. It's coming from people who live a very decent life, who are amongst you know the one percent um, of the richest people on earth, and we are too, right? Just by living in Northern Europe here, um, so um, it's elitist. And then, yeah. Is it some sort of virtue signaling or so if people are advocating this degrowth? That's part of it, I guess. Um, but it's also kind of non-consequential for them personally, right? They live a good life, the advocates of degrowth. And they, in a way, they have the luxury to downsize, whereas not so many people have that luxury to downsize, right? And it's kind of a... This is, I guess, a simplistic solution again. In the beginning of this podcast, Ash, you, you, you talked about population, right? The population bomb. The idea probably being, oh, people are such a problem. So if we have fewer people, we have fewer problems, right? And here again. That's Stalin, right? No man, no problem. Yeah, yeah. But you know, people are much more than, you know... Um, CO2 emitters and, and, and uh, trapping the earth. We are creative beings as well, right? And we come up with solutions. So um, I guess it's a simplistic way of looking at people when it comes to the population debate. I think it's a simplistic solution to look at degrowth as a solution for the problems that are there, of course, when there's economic growth all the time. I think the solution is having cleaner energy production, for instance, and, and better ways of producing the food uh, that we need. Hmm. Tia, I'd like to bring you in here. I, I mean, in your uh, the work you did in the Greens, I, you know, you're working day to day, I'm sure, with people who are um, in influenced or, or even advocating the, the, the degrowth idea. What um, I'd be sort of the same question to you, uh, but how, why do you think that it has gotten this very influential powerful position where a lot of people kind of just assume that this is the the reality and 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 don't really question beyond that or maybe even get angry when it is questioned um the green part in finland is quite interesting because we have like fiscally like right-wing people and left-wing people and for example in this degrowth green growth uh type of thinking we're divided so we do have like degrowth people and then we have green growth people in the in the same party so the discussions are over, always very interesting i think um the appeal is kind of similar um to the the image that we discussed earlier so it it has something to do with the the back to nature um image that you think well if i live more like a more of a simple life then the you know we'll be happier and we we um we will have more time in our hands and and so on so so i i think there's a that kind of appeal and also because people are kind of wary of they call them techno fixes so they think that you know if technology fixes something then it's uh, fixed in the wrong way i mean we don't i've i've heard this kind of talk that we don't deserve it like people are bad because they want to do things and, and if we just fix it with technology, 
then that's not the right way to do because we don't deserve it. That's just, you know, because we're greedy and we don't deserve this, this the solution. So I think there's um, that kind of thinking behind that as well. Um, I do think that um, they have some good points as well. Um, so I, I definitely agree that in like we're consuming more um, than that we should be right now. Um, I don't think like recycling and all these kind of solutions will develop in time uh, to prevent um, like big disasters if we keep uh, consuming this way. So I think there needs to be like, you know, um, the environmental impacts should be in the price of goods, which doesn't happen right now. So all the products are too cheap for us to consume uh, when you look at what the environmental impacts of them are. So there are problems like that. And and, and I do agree with those notions. Uh, however, I've seen very little, um, I, I haven't seen a lot of good suggestions on how we can actually limit consumption in democratic societies. Um, so this is very interesting to me. So how can you tell people, how can you say in a democratic free society that you cannot buy more clothes than this in a year. So I haven't seen many practical um, suggestions on how to go about it and, and how, if politicians were, were to do this, uh, what prevents them from uh, being kicked away in the next elections and people voting in people who will not set these limits. So I think that's a part of the story that's really missing from the degrowth movement, like how to actually get there. So. That's why, like in, in Replanet, we don't, for example, we don't believe that people will just be become vegans. Uh, and so we want to give them an option, which is really uh, easy for them. So they can just switch from meat to a product which is very similar and tastes the same and has the same price. Because we believe that that is much easier than trying to convince people that, you know, you should stop eating meat and, and so on. But yeah, that. I think that there's a lot of that kind of back to nature thinking and that we don't deserve these techno fixes. Yeah, I mean, did you know, by the way, uh, Thea, sorry to, to interrupt here. Did, did you know that the word techno fix was once coined for to mean nuclear energy as oh, a positive thing in the 1960s? Yeah, yeah. I by, didn't know that. By Elvin yeah. Weinberg. Yeah. yeah, I mean, nuclear energy was, you know, supposed to provide all this clean electricity and, and, and back then... It was, of course, compared to coal production, very, very dirty. Um, and um, it could, you know, desalinate water, for instance. So there were all these wonders of nuclear energy. And technological fix was then a positive word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, Marco, you mentioned um, something, uh, you know, the, the, the population idea. And I do find it interesting that, the the population growth thing i think has become you know it used to be this very explicit theoretical idea i mean you know groups like the club of rome i think still to this day pretty much take it as an assumption um you know as i mentioned the one child policy in china took it as an assumption but i i think on the the more explicit theoretical side the the population bomb idea has been fairly uh, you know, I, I don't see discussed much, at least. I'm sure it still has its advocates, but I, I think it is now recognized to at least be simplistic, um, if not actually wrong. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people will say it was wrong, in fact, in its um, predictions. But 
I I think it has retained kind of cultural power in people's assumptions, right? And uh, you know, you kind of see the like birth rates declining happens across modern societies. Um, and, you know, and it, it's even really unclear if this is entirely a good thing. It's probably not a good thing in a number of ways. But, you know, I think in the West, we're in this interesting case where unlike, say, Singapore, for example, or China or, you know, South Africa uh, or Brazil, uh, right, which has a huge population decline, there that is kind of a, a, a part of modernity, right? People become middle class or upper middle class. Uh, and they stop having as many kids because now they're prioritizing education and investment in each child and so on. In Western countries, I think you will hear sort of in the wild, so to speak, on the street, people express concern that having children is sort of bad for the planet in some way. And, I, you know, this is a refrain that you'll see. And maybe to some extent, it's a justifying a decision that would have been taken anyway. But I think whether or not that's true, I think that this basic concept where human beings as a species, like we ourselves, not our form of society or something like that, are seen as harmful to the planet, that is a, a fundamental frame on humans that I think if you take that, it is very hard to do anything else in a kind of constructive or, or, or modernist way. You know, I, I think that there is this basic assumption that humans are good the human species is good and we're basically in favor of more humans uh you know m maybe that's simplistic but you know i think a lot of these things come down to these instincts right these instinctual reactions right D do you see sort of an expanding humanity as this you know glorious growth of this you know <laughs> intelligent species and maybe we get to the stars or the oceans or do you see it as this you know cancer spreading across the world you know taking up resources killing off <laughs> other species like these sorts of instincts i think go into a lot of um how the ideology stuff plays out mm -hmm. and yeah. i guess I, i'm interested to hear how you guys both think about the population question yeah, yeah. no I, i'm obviously not one of those who see humanity as a as a cancer on this planet i think that's a really harsh um judgment on on people i see i mean most people are good, some people are bad, but in general, you know, we want to um, improve lives for ourselves and especially for our children, which is probably why um, life is getting better over, you know, over generations. Um, at least now that we have the ability to actually make that happen. Um, so that, yeah, that that's my position. Um, and, you know, the people who are so concerned about population growth, they rarely mean um, themselves, right? They, they it's, it's usually people who aren't like them. It's people in, well, let's say it, uh, on the African continent, right? Because that's where a lot of the expected population growth will be coming from. Um, I, well, uh, there is like a, a, a racist uh, kind of thing to this, I think, um, which is not probably something that the people who are concerned about population growth will want to acknowledge. But I think this is a dark side of complaining about population growth. I'm I'm all for, you know, families in Africa having the choice to, you know, see how many children they want. But it sounds like um, Western people 
telling black people how to live their lives and, and how many children to have, basically, in, in, yeah. in order Although to the, the still Westerners... support the earth. A lot of the Westerners don't have kids either, right? I mean, I, I you make a good point. They don't mean themselves. You know, there's this interesting thought experiment where, to be a bit provocative, right, when someone says that humans are a cancer, the, the automatic response should not be to engage them with arguments, but to put a pistol in front of them and let them know how to use it. Uh, but, of course, no one ever means that. But people do, in fact, mean their own children. They will They will not have children, and they will at least justify it in terms of um, you know, the, the, it's bad for the planet, or maybe you should only have one. I, you know, I, speaking personally, I know a number of larger families who, uh, you know, I, I think do get quite strong responses. Uh, you know, I, people who have four or more children will get quite, quite, uh, you know, negative responses uh, on, on a fairly regular basis. And I, I think that that shows, um, you know, perhaps there is a racial dynamic for some of it, but it, it I think it does show that they, they're they sort of putting their skin in the game in a weird way, aren't they? Yeah, uh, if yeah, you're but actually wonder, not having children. Yeah, but I wonder, Ash, what comes first? Is it the people may use different arguments to sort of justify their um, their choices in life, for, for instance, for not having children. Mm -hmm. And right now, the, the climate, the environment... The future, sort of, they've become arguments, um, moral arguments. So you make yourself even, you know, kind of important, and you show off that you're you're a good person. You you care so much for the planet that you don't want to have children. Whereas that decision, they may have made it in their minds somewhere in the sure, back of their sure. minds, maybe a long time ago, or for before, other reasons. Yeah, for other reasons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's true. That, uh, but I think that the re, you know, the ideology may be an explanation after the fact, but I think that is still then then consequential. I do want to uh, ask you, Tia, how the population question has been talked about among the Finnish Greens and maybe uh, you know the eco modernists and other groups that you've been involved in. Sort of, what is the current discussion about the human population question? Um. Well, in Finland, like where uh, our birth rate is uh, at the like of all time low, um, so Finns are definitely not having kids. Um, we actually did a statement uh, with the Finnish economists about this population uh, topic because it was you in in Finland um, the most uh, common type of, of people who are saying it's a problem elsewhere. Uh, not in Western countries, but it's a plot, like Marco said, it, it, there's a racist um, background to it. Uh, it's people who are climate denialists and they don't want to do any climate action. They don't want to get rid of fossil fuels because they want people to concentrate on this population problem. So for those people, it's a, it's a racist thing and it's a, basically a diversion from from the climate topic. And they usually have kids on the, of, of their own. So they just not meaning themselves, they're meaning other people who they don't like. Um, but then um, I know that there are very many like environmental uh, conscious uh, people who decide not to have kids because uh, of environmental reasons, but they are usually not the ones complaining about the population uh, in other countries. So in Finland, there's like these two types of people in this discussion. Um, we took a stand because we wanted to say that you know population growth it's it's not 
as a big of a problem as people think. And the problem is that uh, people in Western countries are consuming a lot more per person than people in uh, developing countries. And it's the consumption which is the problem. And there's no way we can um, get a population decline at the pace that we need it to help it with, with climate change uh, crisis and everything. So we we need to act on, on fossil fuels anyway. Um, and usually when you ask people, so what do you want to do about population growth? Um, they're not going to say that, you know, let's blow a bomb or a, um, release a, a, a plague or something. So they're right. just kind of hinting. But it might not be a bad idea, <laughs> but, but right? But they're it's not going to tell yeah, you yeah, how exactly. that happens. Yeah. <laughs> so we made a statement um, that, of course, we support. We we know what helps. We know that uh, educating women helps, um, you know, having access to birth control, all these things. Of course, we support it. Uh, getting rid of poverty is a very good way. Um, so, of course, like the more people we have, the more, you know, resources they're going to they're going to consume but we already know the humane uh methods uh what we should use and it, that's that's what we um want to support in replanet as well we want to get people out of poverty and we want to educate people uh, and so on so we know mm. the solutions but these people are complaining about the population usually have other solutions in in their mind but they're not willing to say them out loud because they it's unacceptable you know, socially yeah so uh tia yeah. uh Google tells me that Finland's fertility rate right now is 1.37, which is, of course, below replacement. Uh, replacement is 2.1. Do you think it would be a good idea for Finland to get above replacement again? Um, well, it's up to the people, really. I mean, if people don't want to have kids, I mean, sure. you can't well, force it, them. Thought experiment we, people, certainly... you know, magically change their... Yeah. <laughs> in, of their own volition, decide they want to have kids again. Finland hits two point five or something. Do do you think that that would be a good thing for for Finland and for the planet? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily good for the planet. I mean, I I I would like to see Finns having more kids, especially if the reason for not having kids is because they're so uncertain about the future, and they're so scared of the future. Uh, that's never a good thing. So I would I would hope that people in Finland would have a more optimistic view about this the future. And I'm you know one of my uh, things that I want to do uh, with Replanet is to provide them with a um, this more positive vision. Um, but also, I mean, we what we discuss in Finland is taking a lot more people in from other countries because we do have a lot of land in Finland, so we can you know, accommodate a lot more people and that's actually needed uh, for our economy because we don't, we will not have, have enough people to do um, because the, the population is getting older and we need some, we need people to take care of them and so on. So it's a bit of a problem. Yeah, I mean. But I, I think that the, the biggest reason is that people are kind of scared to have right. kids and they're Yeah, I mean, I, I think this thing usually happens um there's kind of a social effect where, you know, some social groups, you know, I'm talking on the level of friends or, you know, a religious community or things like that. Everyone will have, you know, a few kids and then other groups, no one will have any kids. And I think that, you know, there a number of countries have tried to figure out how you how you get the fertility rate up and very few things seem to actually work. And it seems like the main thing that works is not... Um, you know, th th there is the theory, well, you know, you need to have a, a good welfare state in place, and then people will have 
children. But of course, Scandinavia has some of the the most renowned welfare states in the world, and every Scandinavian country is below replacement. Um, and that that's even with you know I I, I don't know the numbers here for Europe, but uh, from what I've seen in in the states at least, there is often um, you know the number of children people will express that they want to have is usually higher than the amount that they end up having. And so, you know, the, the, the economist lens on this would be, well, the, the revealed preferences obviously want less children. But, you know, an, another read on that is that they don't feel that it's acceptable or viable to have the number of children they want. Um, so I, I'm interested to, you know, I, I think that globally speaking, uh, you know, we published an article um, a, few, a couple months back um, about the concept of the metropole and basically looking in part at fertility rates around the world. And I mean, we're seeing at this point, you know, the the the, the inverted pyramid effect in most regions, in, in not just North America and Europe, but in Asia, uh, Central Asia and East Asia, in South America. It really is Africa and parts of the Middle East and maybe some parts of South Asia for the moment that are actually keeping the fertility rate. And, the, you know, the, the immigration thing, this is obviously an important short-term debate, but if the whole world, right, if the whole human species ends up in in below replacement, then what we have straightforwardly is a declining number of humans on Earth. Uh, and I, I do think that that, you know, that question is really the one where, um, you know, that's where the, the, the concept of whether humans are ultimately a benefit to the world, to the Earth, to, you know, the planet, or a burden on it is important. And, you know, th this is, what is the story that we tell about why humans, you know, are actually good to have on the planet, right? Traditional religion, right? Christianity has a story about humans are meant to be stewards of the earth, right? And you know, Pope Francis today, he talks a lot about this. Humans should be stewards and responsible stewards of the globe and of the, the environment. But that is a vision where humans are central in some way to, you know, the life on earth. Uh, even though they might not be the only thing valuable on Earth. And I, I think that there's... It's very hard to see compelling stories right now, I think, in the environmental movement, even, I, I would say, more eco-modernist circles in Europe and, and North America, that explain why exactly are humans actually good to have on the planet? You know, why should we desire uh, humans to be a, a dominant species on the planet? Um, and I, I mean, I, I sort of just want to put that question to you, you know, why, why, why should humans be, uh, you know, the, the, in the place that we are on earth, this, this hegemon species, uh, why, why is this good for the earth? Um, maybe Mark, I'll, I'll start with you on this one. Um, well, humans are the only species that can actually, <laughs> um, with a will to, to change things for the better, right? We have a plan and we can execute it well and we can execute it poorly, um, but we're the ones shaping destiny, right? I don't see so much of a problem with us being dominant. I would just like us to be friendly to other human beings in the first place and being friendly to other humans and friendly to nature. And we kind of, we've kind of learned over the past decades to do that in a much better way than we've done before, right? Um, which is why we're seeing um, um, many people escaping 
extreme poverty, for instance, why we see more development in poorer countries. Um, it's why we're seeing fewer wars between countries with fewer deadly victims, for instance. It's why we see diseases being solved. Um, so that's that's one of the things. That, that's all stuff that we're doing, right? Um, so I, I guess that would be a reason. And, and I hear you, Ash, sort of thinking that there may be a problem when we have fewer people on the planet, right? It, sort of towards the end of the century, I guess, when population growth has declined. It, is, is that the point you were making? Because I, 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 uh, I, I wonder if to... that's I, I wonder if that's true. If, if if there would be problems when the global population would decline, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I, I do think it's it's a fairly new phenomenon that hasn't happened for centuries. I would think. Um, um, so well, it's let, probably let me a situation... put it to you this way, Marco, to answer your question. I think that. You know, obviously, if you have a situation where we actually don't solve any of these problems, and then humans are, you know, in in the, in this marginal sense, like a, a burden, then yeah, the the decreasing of human population will probably bring more stability in some sense to the existing ecosystems. But of course, then that's only the case because we did not solve those problems. So I guess there is a sort of all else equal sense. Um, to the statement, but I would sort of say that, you know, if if the human species is kind of solving these species level challenges that are put before it, then, you know, assuming that, yes, I would say that uh, the growth of the population, uh, you know, even that if that mm -hmm. means off Earth is is desirable. But of course, but, that, but then, that, you know, that is the yeah. challenge of, 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 of population yeah, growth, yeah. right? But, but if we look at education level levels rising in countries that are now considered poor and upcoming, right? Um, we will have so much more um, people who actually have, you know, can put their minds and hands also to work and, and do good things for us, right? So whereas currently so many billions of people actually are now doing, you know, doing work on, on their own small plot of land, working very, very hard just to get by, whereas it, it won't take that long until many more people will actually be more, you know, can can use their um, uh, their minds into things much more creative than this. So I, I, I don't see that problem so much um, coming up when our global population would decline. No. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I think that th this is why the sort of all else equal thing comes in, because, you know, an, an additional human, uh, if if they are, you know, um, if they are raised to contribute properly, if the the means exist for them to contribute properly, is you know all else equal a benefit, right? Uh, I I think that if one takes the view that you know the average human uh, is is a cost, uh, then that you know that's probably its own its own discussion. But I, I think if you if one does have that view, then yes, there is the, there is this kind of irreconcilable difference between. Um, you know whether you think that population growth or shrinkage uh, is is the right way to go. If the additional human is a cost, then obviously you know you don't want costs. However, you define that. Um, if you have an optimistic view of humans, then you know I, I think that the more the more fine grained way to express that is, you know there there are these these uh, contradictions, these uh, conflicts that come up between humans and 
well, between humans and also between humans and our environment and humans and nature and so on. But these are, you know, uh, you either resolve these things or you don't, right? And obviously, even population growth as such is never constant, right? The Black Death comes to Europe and half of Europe dies out within about a generation or much less than that even. So, you know, it's not like you just have constant population growth. There's always this kind of recurring cycle of sort of, you know, the, the the earth throws up a challenge and maybe not everyone gets through that challenge. But, you know, and, and, and maybe there's even these unexpected di new directions that things take, right? Like half the peasants are gone. Now all the peasants have a lot more power and now they're able to start kind of overturning the feudal order. You know, the there, there's always a complexity to that sort of thing. I think that the thing I'm thinking about is on actually a much more basic instinctual level than that, where, uh, you know, that that loss was a cost that occurred because we were not able to overcome a particular challenge, right? And and I think that 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 is kind of the basic instinct uh, that that I'm trying to highlight here, rather than kind of every situation um, in in which humans you know might successfully shrink or successfully grow. Um, I, I think that that basic instinct of whether humans are basically good, fundamentally good in some sense, and therefore, you know, having more humans is in some way a sign of the success of our species, right? That That's the kind of broad assumption that, that I'm trying to draw out here. Um, and, and, you know, obviously that plays out in, in different ways as in the course of history, I guess. Um, I, I do want to, Tia, make sure we, we bring you in, in here as well. Um, I, I mean, I'm kind of... Uh, I'll, I'll put sort of the similar question to you um, as to, uh, you know, like, we're, I, I guess we've kind of brought the discussion a bit forward here to, we can imagine ways that the human population might shrink and, you know, this could end up being stably good for the planet somehow. Um, what is your instinct, like, in, in this more basic way when it comes to human population growth? I mean, would would we want to see... 15 billion humans if we had the infrastructure that the, this did not destabilize the planet? Well, I live in the countryside because there's so many, so, I mean, I don't like to live among a lot of people. <laughs> so probably not a good person to answer this for me, which is like a, just the idea of having a lot of people around me would be already like pretty horrible. Um, to me, like the the question about whether humans should be are, are good for the planet or not, uh, it's pretty obvious because we are the only ones who can save the life on this planet. So we we are the only ones who can travel to other planets, and and we can, we are the only ones who can maybe someday be able to divert a meteorite of, uh, that's you know coming to Earth or something like that. So it's I mean the life on this planet is doomed uh, if you you know thinking very um, long into the future, obviously, but I mean, it's it's doomed anyway. So to me, humans are the only ones who can take the life from this planet to other planets and, and save it. Um, and that that's my type of thinking. So so I, I think, yeah, we're the only ones who can save it. And so it's, it's doomed. Yeah, I, I think, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, um, finish uh, your, your thoughts. Yeah, and, and so the, like, would I like to have, like, do I think it would be good for the ha planet to have more people? I mean, I, I do understand the point that the more people we have, that means the more, that we'll have more ideas, more talent. And so, yeah, I mean, if we would assume that 
the extra person wouldn't be an extra burden to the, the ecosystems, then yeah, that would make sense that more people would would be a um, better thing. That, yeah, than I mean, obviously, people. you know, when you're on the raft in the middle of the ocean and there's like three days of rations left, the additional person is a burden. But of course, you know, that that's... Uh, yeah solving the whole situation of being on a raft in the ocean is is the is the problem there not uh you know it, it's the higher order problem there let's say i mean, I, I think you know I, I want to kind of move on to a couple other topics but i'll just say you know from my perspective um you know i i'm a, a bit of a fan of like talhar de chardon on this question where you know you, you have something like intelligence and consciousness uh, across you know different species but there does seem to be something about the human species where that consciousness has reached a level of concentration and self-reflection and self-organization even that is unique uh, as far as we know in the history of the planet. And, you know, you, you can kind of attribute whatever meaning to that metaphysically that you want, but in a, in a sort of just factual sense, that means that the planet now has an organizing force on it that is unprecedented. And I think that you know, in, in, in that sense, and, you know, Tia, as you're mentioning, right, that this is how you, you, you have kind of a, a mental order of existence now, right? Human minds in contact with each other through technology and, and organizing the planet, not just in, in some kind of chaotic or decentralized way, but in an organized way, both in the way resources are managed here, but also in, in ways that we might expand life beyond this planet. Um, I do think that is unique. And I think that this that uniqueness is something we should consider on a species level. So I'll sort of put that out there as my, you know, answer to this question. Although, you know, I'm sure we could do a whole a whole show just on that discussion. I, I want to turn now, though, to um, the question of power, I guess, in the degrowth, uh, you know, possibility or the degrowth ideology. Uh, and, and this is something I think both of you have touched on. Um, with regards to like the racial dynamics, say, of how people talk about population growth. But I, I think that this, you know, you can find like the economic side of this as well. I I tend, and I would say palladium tends overall, to, to have a very material analysis, let's say, of power. I don't mean in a Marxist sense here specifically, but, you know, I, I think that the useful way to analyze uh, society and come to conclusions about the future is to look at the institutions, to look at the uh, material power of different populations or countries, to look at the um, level of coordination they have. And if you look at that, right, it's, it's unquestionable that we still live in a world where the global north is wealthy and powerful, and the global south is not as wealthy or as powerful as the north. And so if you imagine that you know most leaders in the global north become convinced that growth is now a zero-sum game, I basically reject the assumption that we're going to get this kind of harmonious, you know, parceled out version of growth. I think you will straightforwardly see the north's power used to limit and disrupt growth in the south and shore up the gains in the north so that you don't have chaos in the streets, right? I, 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 I sort of, I, I'd like to hear, you know, how, how, and that seems like, a, you know, a dangerous scenario, especially if development actually is possible in a sustainable way. And, and I, I'd like to hear how you guys, you know, how, how much of a threat actually is 
this way of thinking when you actually start to consider the balance of power on the planet? And, and Marco, again, maybe we'll start with you here. Yeah, so, so you're referring to the inequality between the global north and the global south, mainly. Yes, right? in, 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 yeah. a, in a power sense here, not just yeah. sort of economic wealth or things like that. No. You know, who who gets to decide what degrowth yeah, looks well, like uh, effectively? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's obvious from international politics and also now the, the climate change conference that just ended in, uh, in Egypt, um, it, that it's the global north um, that sort of decides <laughs> where the world is going to, right? This is, um, they tell other countries how they should do it even though back home they do, you know, when it comes to fossil fuels, for instance, um, they tell other countries not to use fossil fuels, but back home they fire up coal-fired power plants. So, um, where, um, I, and I would like to see that dynamic change, of course, and have the global south much more in a position where we listen to them and let them make their own choices, just like we made ours, right? Um, um, but I guess another point you were saying that um, the leaders in the global north, they like the idea of degrowth and, and, and that is something that's sort of puzzling to me sometimes. Um, I, I kind of feel that um, politicians don't have these big dreams, big visions anymore. They're sort of managing the country more like a manager, I guess. And... Um, they may go along with that ideal of degrowth because they um, they maybe lost faith themselves in, in the future and, and have become unsure about their own role in, in, in how, in, in what's next, basically, right? Because from mainly their perspective, we have it all, you know, in a country like the Netherlands, I guess, um, or Finland for that matter. Um, we have... A level of um, a standard of living that's very very convenient so I guess their question becomes and now what and I would love for them <laughs> that the answer would be to to turn to so many other uh, countries around the world and, and try to assist them in, in making a, a, a development um, that we have gone through um, so they can flourish as well but it seems like there's much Naval gazing is that a word in English? Help me, yeah. And and I think that may be sort of underlying all this. It's it's a crisis of confidence, I guess, confidence in in themselves, maybe in politics in general, which has become kind of a cynical theater, right? At, at, at more places than just one. So, um, yeah, this may be behind all this. But uh, tell you what, what's your vision? We haven't talked about this before, have we? No, not really. Uh, yeah, I think it's really up to the citizens in, in, in the global north to pressure and encourage, well, encourage, because I, I agree that there's a lack of confidence um, to actually, you know, have a positive vision about the future and, and start doing things. Um, and well, of course, energy crises and the, and, and the war, it's something that makes the politicians to look uh, into their own countries and and because you know energy prices are going up and and so on and, and politicians start to become very afraid 
that people will voters will get angry and you know i just have to do something to to calm them down so that's a definitely a problem because then they're kind of not thinking about the other countries they're thinking how they can secure their own success in the next elections um politicians rarely do anything unless they get pressure from the general public um so i think it's really up to the the citizens in the global north to demand that we take global south into decision making and we help them to get where get where we are already but okay let let me challenge you on that what what is the incentive to bring the global south into decision making i mean isn't it isn't it more useful to have a monopoly on decision making yeah power is never something to to, to give up easily right so the, there is no incentive indeed you're you're totally right in that so it, it it must come from the global south i guess demanding that they be hurt um but have they been hurt when it comes to you know the climate change conference in egypt they were there with their own reports and and press conference and everything and actually for replanet one of us was there and and teamed up with many of them you know the climate vulnerable nations gathered in this uh, CVF, uh, this Climate Vulnerable Fund, um, they have their reports on, on compensations, and, and um, but that's been hardly picked up, even, not even, mm. you know, by newspapers such as The Guardian, for instance. So it, it yeah. It, well, I, and it, I, I, I would even say, you know, it does... Does the global South have to care about being heard in the West when a, a, a new superpower exists that is not part of the West, that has a totally different ideology, and that is very, very interested in trade and development on its own terms instead, right? I, I think that there is still an assumption, and I will say, I, I think that this is something I see more in Europe than in America, where, you know, America is sort of just, just closer to Asia um, geographically and economically, uh, and, and I do I do think that uh, you, and you know, you go to somewhere like San Francisco, and people are going to China, to Southeast Asia all the time for for just business purposes. I don't think a lot of Asia, and I think even you know many African states at this point are not thinking in terms of how do we get the West to hear us. There, the, the material basis and the resources for economic development exist, uh, and it's really just a matter of are you going to risk western diplomatic lecturing or not when you but do there, that there you have an and, you incentive know, maybe... though for the west because if we don't want um other superpowers to take over and you know do whatever they they want uh in for example africa and and so on and and we don't want kind of them to get the power then it's our it's an incentive for us to get involved to make sure that we're there as well but when it comes to my incentives, like the reason why I do it, it's because I believe it's right. And, and I'm sure there are many others who believe it's right as well. And I do think we can help the global south to get their voices heard. So I think it's an obligation for myself, for example, to help them do that. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's always this interesting question, you know, we talked about ideology a couple times here already, but you know, there. I think that there are ideologies which can be unstated, and one one of those is you know the the relationship between Western power and the climate crisis. And you know, I was reading recently about this a, a new fuel tax being done by the European Union, and uh, 
a fuel tax on shipping where where basically ships of any flag coming into EU ports uh, will have to pay a, uh, a a fuel tax basically. And the idea, you know, the, the justifications obviously curbing emissions and and all of that stuff. But it it it's this interesting situation now where the EU is effectively implementing a global. I mean, because you can't really avoid Europe, uh, you know, if you're a multinational, uh, a global company. So you you obviously do have here you have a unilateral, effectively global tax, at least for the near term, being imposed uh, by one power on the others. And now here's and the thing is, you know, if the justifications for that tax might be completely correct and, and kosher, and it may be the correct thing to do. But the power balance of that decision is what it is. And so if, you know, if in fact, the EU is in this position where, you know, the, the climate crisis is this immediately exist, immediate existential threat, we cannot wait for, you know, all the the multilateral institutions to develop. We can't just wait for everyone to agree on it. Uh, there is going to have to just be unilateral action by a super, by, you know, by a great power, let's say, to to start imposing these policies using trade as as a sort of weapon. Now, you know, I, I'm kind of taking the logic of this tax. This is just one tax, but I'm taking this logic and kind of scaling up the implications of it. Um, you know, I, I think that that is this... Uh, it's it's a direction of climate politics that I think is not often discussed, and you know, is the whole world going to be able to coordinate on these questions? I mean, I, I, maybe I'm a pessimistic person. I think it's not that likely, and uh, you know, we, I, I, I sort of tend to think that we will actually see countries uh, evolving their sort of more distinct ideologies surrounding this question. You know, uh, we. Uh, Palladium published a piece recently actually on North Korea and its environmental ideology, which for, you know, historical reasons, um, it actually has an environmentalist ideology, but it is completely unrelated to any anything we're familiar with here. It's, it's this kind of nationalist ideology that is forwarded by the North Korean regime. It, it draws on these kind of indigenous, you know, concepts of, you know, the Korean people, living you know in coexistence with the pine forest and this kind of thing it grew up out of a set of circumstances totally different from that of western environmentalism but it is an environmentalist ideology and so you know we can kind of imagine if if you know the climate crisis gets more severe um we don't solve a bunch of these questions about resources and prosperity i think that what you then see you know if ideology follows from these realities of power what you then see is a breakup of environmentalism as it exists now, where China or Nigeria or whoever, Brazil, develops a, a, an environmentalist ideology that is much more focused on its particular interests. And I think we can imagine, you know, the European or the American environmentalist ideology similarly, you know, becoming more assertive about, you know, it is our job to safeguard the planet and less concerned with multilateralism. Um, I mean, let, let me just put that to both of you. And, and T, I'll start with you this time. Do you, do you see that as a um, kind of a, a likely outcome uh, of of the you know failures in the coordination that are happening right now? Yeah, definitely one of the outcomes uh, because we have definitely um, we haven't succeeded in 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 
in these agreements uh, the way we we should have um but but there are methods of 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 getting on like different countries in agreeing on 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 for example a carbon tax um and there are many theories of how that can be done um so that you know we'll get started so you for example agree on a minimum uh price i mean everyone says like what is their the level that they agree on and even before these negotiations you agree that you start with the smallest sum so whoever offers the smallest um tax then you agree on that at first because then then you know it's it kind of makes it uh, easier to get it into this agreement um that hasn't been tried yet i mean they only discuss uh like emission reduction targets um so not sure whether whether it would be a better strategy to kind of agree on a carbon tax that would be same for example i mean they would agree on a certain carbon tax level between like big countries but of course the situation now with the war and everything makes all this even more difficult because china is kind of siding with russia although maybe not and they're kind of thinking about what they're going to do with it and and so it's become even more difficult and the internal political situation in the states and so on so yeah well and that's a good point maybe right i think you yourself pointed out it's you know for europe it's not the kind of merits of nuclear power that are really changing this discussion it's a new war and a new hostility with russia and you know there's this adaption getting made that is kind of useful um you know in the immediate sense for for pro nuclear advocates but you know unless there's there's a more you know that that change gets put on a more solid basis then you know if nuclear power is just this temporary emergency response then when the emergency is over you go back to normal you know that's not the same thing as actually changing yeah. the worldview but you know the, the more immediate thing i'm pointing out here is that power the trend the trend though started yeah the trend uh, the pro nuclear trend uh, started though uh, before the war already of course the war has accelerated it but i i definitely agree and we're very aware of this at replanet that if it's just an emergency solution then when the emergency stops then people might change their mind again so that's why we do um keep on informing people of the good i mean the benefits of nuclear that that will be still there once every all this is over so it's definitely important to kind of make the change more permanent so marco to run. you the, this question of you know the degree to which these environmental possibilities really follow from these you know hard power imbalances and concerns you know how how do you approach this and what do you see as the most likely um outcome of of those imbalances yeah it, these things are hard to predict i think um i remember interviewing james hansen once he's the climate scientist who also supports nuclear by the way uh, he's been act- advocating for a global carbon tax for many many years now and it's become so tiring <laughs> for him and it just it, it's not very feasible something like that it seems right there are so many things at play um and a world government, some people would love to have, you know, something like a world government. Others would, would hate the idea, um, but it just, it just doesn't seem very likely, right? Because it would, it would actually mean that at a national level, you would 
give up power and, and this is not something that nations will be comfortable doing and we see it even within the European Union I guess um, if we only look at how difficult it has been for nuclear to be included in the taxonomy of um, technologies that are considered green and sustainable um, it's it's been such a rough fight with some countries like Germany and Austria um, just not willing to to cooperate here um, it, it, it will be even harder on a, on a larger scale I think and, and we can actually see that country like the like the United Kingdom for instance after you know leaving the United um, the European Union this country may actually be able to change laws um, more easily <laughs> because they don't need to um, be in touch with the European Union all the time with um, so when it comes to uh, precision fermentation for instance which is very much you know part of our reboot food campaign it seems like a totally different topic now <laughs> but there are laws within the European Union um, banning uh, genetic modification whereas this is something that is needed for um, precision fermentation not the ingredients but the process so a country like the UK now is much more uh, can adapt much more to these kind of things and change laws much faster than on the European Union level so uh, I'm not sure if it's a good trend by the way that that nations will decide for themselves but it is it seems like this is where it may go right and 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 people wanting uh, this just to 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 gain more control over what is happening uh, in their societies I guess I actually believe that uh, um, co like contracts about uh, uh, carbon taxes and, and such are more likely to happen within a sector like aviator, aviation or, or shipping like they might come to agreement on a global level like how they um, want to become carbon neutral or whatever um, rather than nations because it's much more difficult so I, I if we're going to see something like that I think it's going to happen in in sectors like this yeah i mean it is the case certainly that you know business is is in a lot of ways more it's better coordinated at the global level than uh than a lot of governances um i mean i remember uh an, an interview we did um some some time ago uh on on this question kind of made the provocative point that if you think about um you know the the reversal you know car carbon um carbon capture uh what you need to be imagining is a global level you know exxon mobile type oil company but in reverse and you know i think that again you know coming to the the idea of images this is not an image that a lot of environmentalists are are naturally comfortable with um even though the goal you know the, the sort of outcome at least the stated goal of it is actually the the same so I, I note uh, we, we've kind of come to time here. Um, this was a really interesting discussion, so I wanted to thank you both again for making so much time to have it. Um, I wanted to just give you guys uh, a minute or two um, to boost any projects, books, anything else on your end um, that you'd like to promote. Huh. Well, my book is in Dutch, so I, I'm expecting not many listeners to actually be able to, to read my book. Uh, but maybe one day it'll be in English. No, um, yeah. What, what, uh, what guess... is the what is the title of the book? Just in you know, we might have some people. <laughs> Do you want me to say it in Dutch? Uh, Dutch and English, the translation. Yeah. yeah. 
So in Dutch, it's uh, waarom we niet bang hoeven te zijn voor kernenergie, which would translate to um, why we need not fear nuclear energy, maybe one day. Yeah, okay. Dutch, well, if there's no, any Dutch, yeah. uh, Dutch, Dutch listeners, Dutch speakers, uh, the available for you. And um, Tia, on on your end, uh, is there anything you'd like to mention uh, before yeah, we wrap I mean, up? Yeah, please do visit our campaign website at rebootfood.org. Um, that has the, the our latest campaign and and some cool information and and videos. So check it out. Okay, well, thank you again, guys. Uh, and you know, Palladium's latest uh, print issue, uh, Palladium Seven, discusses a number of these concepts uh, from the you know the, the vision for uh, the environmental future down to particular issues like nuclear power in detail. Uh, as with all our print issues, we have custom art, and we've created a beautiful artifact uh, showcasing an anthology of our best work on this topic, uh, as we do for every print issue. The next one of those prints is coming out in December. And so you can go to palladiummag.com slash 07 to see more detail on the latest print and to figure out how to become a subscriber and receive those four times a year. Thanks again, Tia and Marco. And thanks to everyone who joined us. Till next time. Mm-hmm.